This season, Handcut Radio is sponsored by Thomas Mason, an historic British textiles brand which is owned and protected by the Albini Group. Dating back to 1796 and founded in the town of Nelson, Lancashire, Thomas Mason has long specialised in luxurious, superfine shirting fabrics, which are known equally for their quality, design flair and textile innovation. From the invention of Zephyr in 1818 to the company's pioneering work in the traceability of cotton today, if you like to have your shirts made, Thomas Mason is the cloth to ask for. Huge thanks to the Thomas Mason team for making this season possible. Now, on with the show. Hello lovely people and welcome once again to Handcut Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fetkovich. As we near the end of our sixth season, we're breaking with convention to have a chat with a fellow Brit, Jason Jules. Nevertheless, Jason's new book, Black Ivy, A Revolt in Style, is very pertinent to this season's theme given its focus on mid-century American menswear. Of course, we chat about the book at length, but I also wanted to hear about Jason's career path and gather some of his learnings from along the way. So in this podcast, we chat about PR, jazz, rap culture, creativity, trend forecasting, and of course, Ivy Style too. It was a real treat to talk to Jason, and I hope you'll find this conversation as illuminating as I did. Jason, Jason Jules, welcome to Handcut Radio. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, sir. Oh, what a pleasure. Now, I, I'm going I'm to preface this episode, I do a bit of due diligence. You will, you will doubtless uh, appreciate, listeners, that Jason is not from New York. <laughs> he is a fellow Brit. However, um, he has graciously agreed to join us for this New York season because, one, I've been trying to chat to this gentleman for ages. I'm very excited that we've managed it. And two, um, we are, of course, later on in the conversation, going to be talking about Black Ivy and uh, a subject that is very, very relevant to American style. So uh, please enjoy this this spin on our New York season. <laughs> and we almost did the interview in New York. We, oh, exactly. Well, that's the other thing. We almost. did almost do the interview in New York. We caught you. Well, I caught you and uh, stressed you out for a couple of days. <laughs> and then, uh, but we've managed it, which is great. Um, let's think about where we start. I mean, I, I would just love to start with some context, if that's okay, Jason, because I was just saying before the microphones went on, um, we've, we've, we've chinked glasses at various do's, but we've never really had a proper chat. So I would love to just sort of know a bit more about your career and your connection to clothing. Could we start with where your passion for clothes comes from, please? It's hard to say. I mean, I've always, in my head, I've always been into clothes ever since I can remember. Um, my parents essentially were clothes makers. You know, my mum was a, a seamstress, my dad was a tailor. Um, so I've always, even before I could speak, I was kind of surrounded by pieces of clothing. My mum used to um, sew, do piecework basically. So she had a, a industrial size 
um, sewing machine in our living room. Wow. And rather than watch TV, we'd be sitting on the floor, you know, like me, two years old, as, literally as long as I can remember, um, or as far back as I can remember, you know, helping her turn collars and sleeves and stuff. Um, basically working with her as she was sewing. So, yeah, I, I've always, I think I've always been into into clothes for some reason. I'm not even sure why. It just sounds like they were just always there. Yeah, and it's it's almost like, I also remember because my parents were into clothes, there was something really weird about us as, as a family, I think, that, you know, it, it almost felt like we'd go somewhere, like to a, a, a house party or something, and then it felt like we arrived. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Got you, yeah. Like, there'd be this weird hush <laughs> because... You know, we were not necessarily dressed up, but there was something slightly different about us, yeah. Juleses, that kind of seemed like the, 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 you know, the atmosphere changed in the room and there was a bit more of a, an energy or something. I don't, I don't know. It just seemed like my dad was, was like just this super cool guy who was into clothes. That's wicked. So. And he was a tailor. He was a tailor. He learnt the, the trade um, in St. Lucia. Wow. And the, the problem was, of course, that when he got to the UK, he, his training was of no use, of no value to, to the UK industry, so to speak. So he ended up working at Ford's. And oh, interesting wow. enough, that's one thing that myself and Eddie from the Duffer St. George had in common. Basically, Eddie's dad worked at Ford's pretty much the same time my dad did. And they both worked in the foundry, which essentially is like the, the hardest aspect of, of working in a, in a car factory. So... Um, and Eddie went to the same school as me. Got so, me um, right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that we had these, these weird kind of commonalities. Yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty intense. So so he he struggled to get a job as a tailor then. Yeah, he didn't stand a chance basically, and so he he still made clothes for people, um, but at home, you know, it was more of a passion thing. Yeah, it was more people in asking him to make this jacket or this shirt or to you know alter these trousers, etc., stuff like that. So when you used to sort of walk through the door at a party or a do with your parents, were you from a young age very aware that everyone sort of thought you were a well-dressed bunch? Was it quite a sort of a conscious thing? It wasn't conscious, but it was like, I'm trying to figure out what, at the time I was trying to figure out what the cause of this reaction was. Yeah. And why we seemed to be slightly just different from everybody else, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I also remember going to church and... You know, one of the, the exciting parts of going to church, even if, you know, I didn't like going to church, was actually being able to dress up and go. So, you know, you'd, every Sunday we'd be... And I guess they call it, you know, your Sunday best, etc. So that was part of the deal. But for me, it was like a really special occasion, not because I was particularly religious, but because I got to, to dress up. Yeah. And maybe the day before, the Saturday, we could actually go shopping and buy something that was, you know, yeah. this is for church. This is for so there's a highlight occasions. of the week there. Yeah. Oh man, that's really cool. Okay, so clothes are there from a very, very young age. At what point in the timeline did you start sort of connecting with clothes professionally? Because I'm going to say, I'm going to reel it out because I've got it in my notes here. Your CV is awesome because you've you've done a lot of cool stuff. And I've I've got written down model, author, jazz club promoter, want to talk about that, creative director, and I think you've worked in PR as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how does all this sort of knit together? It's a lot of different creative endeavors. I think the the problem is I've never had a proper job. That's <laughs> that literally is the thing. I had I tell a lie. I had one job, and that was my first ever kind of nine to five, real nine to five. When I was 
21. Right. And that was working for Lynn Franks. And the reason I, I went there is because, you know, coming from the school I came from, it was, it was very rare for anybody, literally anyone, to go on to further education. So when I realised I had enough, like, um, A-levels to, to go to university, um, I jumped at it because I wasn't ready to go to work. I just, you know, I couldn't see the reason why I wanted to go to work, what I wanted to do. So I took literally three years off studying English and philosophy. Awesome. And essentially going to clubs a lot. And then I figured, actually, I, I kind of, what is it that I'm into that doesn't look like work but actually is? What kind of career do I want to, you know, embark yeah, on? Yeah, And so now, you were always driven by a passion then to that point. It was never like, oh, you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer. It was always like... Well, I actually wanted to be a lawyer before I took my A-levels. That was my, my vision. I wanted to be a lawyer. But the reason for that was because, don't laugh, but they got to wear suits. So. I, I have had the same thought process at various different points in life. I totally get that. I had zero idea what lawyers did, but I figured they wear suits to work, so that's what I want to do. Fair. But then my my teachers said, forget it, you don't stand a chance. You need to learn Latin to do that, and yeah. you haven't got Latin. Why don't you become a, what do they say? A carpenter. Oh, right. It's quite an unusual shift. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite random. Um, they didn't have any faith in my academic ability at all, let's put right. it that way, like zero faith. So anyway, um, I went to this polytechnic called Thames, which is literally you know, an hour away from where I lived, my, where my parents lived, so I wasn't up for leaving London. Mm. Once I finished studying, I figured, what on earth do you do with English and philosophy, you know, as a degree? So I thought, actually, I'll just stick to what I'm, what I'm into, which is fashion, clothes. So I, I, I decided I wanted to be a stylist. You know, I like magazines, I want to be a stylist. Yeah. So I called um, a couple of magazines, I called... You know, these magazines are gone now, like a magazine called Honey, a magazine called Over 21, and a magazine called uh, Miss London. They all sound a bit weird, right? Yeah, <laughs> but, it does um, great. <laughs> they're all very nice fashion magazines for, for young ladies, etc. And Cosmopolitan, that kind of magazine. Yeah. And pretty much everyone said, you know, forget it. You don't stand a chance. Just, you know, don't call us sort of thing. But one set of people answered, a woman called Becky Bain, and a girl called Sadie Yukon. And they said, in order to figure out how to be you know, a stylist, come and see what we do. So I spent an afternoon at a shoot, which was like amazing, absolutely amazing. They basically you know, had strawberries and cream and champagne and rails and rails of clothes nice. in this incredible studio with like, you know, kind of cityscape scenery. Yeah, like, music going. Music going, it was just absolute bliss. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And Sadie said, if that's, you know, this is for you, then you need to work at a PR company. You need to go into fashion PR and make all the contacts you need. And then from there, you'll be able to either choose where you want to go or, you know, become a stylist because you understand the industry from the inside. Or you'll be invited by some, you know, uh, kind of higher up senior stylist to go and work for them as an assistant. Yeah. yeah. But the place to start is in PR, in fashion PR. And the best place to start is Lynn Franks, because she's the best PR in the country, if not in Europe. So I got a job there as a gopher. I stayed there for a, a while, became a junior account exec. 
Um, I loved the work, it was amazing, but I just didn't love the culture. Uh, and why? Because it was a very fashion-y culture. It was incredibly fashion Everybody wore black. Uh, it was the, you know, I'm from like East London, working class. I wouldn't say I was tough, but I didn't really understand that part of the fashion culture. Mm. You know, the, the air kisses, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. And it just seemed like a, an environment where it was just a bit too fine for me. Yeah. And um, I've so, always struggled with it instantly. Yeah. So eventually, it, I... You know, what I realise now, of course, is that what I loved was the clothes and menswear is more the side of it that interests me and appeals to me rather than this, this overall world that, yeah. that I was kind of... So you're happy being in the niche, being sort of leaning into yeah. Yeah, that subculture of clothing, if you like, yeah. if, men, if we can call menswear a subculture. Yeah, that, that side of that, that world. Whereas fashion per se is... is st- I, still fi- I still think is, is not for me no I mean no so once I left Linz after about a year I still worked for them occasionally writing press releases and organizing events and stuff but because I was constantly going to clubs I just decided to start organizing clubs Ah. and that's how I got into you know being a a quote-unquote club promoter but I never defined myself as a club promoter I always said I was a PR person yeah because PR in clubs because I was just PR in clubs Man, that's cool. So what was that chapter of your life like? That must have been pretty buzzy. It was, it was good. I mean, because, I mean, I guess the, the principle that I've kind of based my, my kind of approach to work on has always been the same. I work with people I like and I do stuff that I like. And so I ended up working with some DJs who are friends of mine who I used to go clubbing with. We started a, you know, a one-nighter. I think it was every... Friday night um, in Shaftesbury Avenue, no, in Charing Cross. Did really well, just playing jazz music, dance jazz. You know, got to dress up, got to go shopping every Saturday with our <laughs> earnings into raised jazz, you know, just spending a ton of money, making it, spending it as quickly as we made it. Yeah. Um, it was great. And hanging out with, you know, loads of people that I, I liked, people that I would club with. I just organised a club on, you know, on a Friday night for them, pretty much. So, and why was it jazz that did it for you? Where did the love of jazz come in? I think partly because I think essentially I, I started off with the image of jazz, and then I realised that there was a whole world that kind of related to that image that I I could you know I could respond to. Um, but yeah, I think the beginning was the fact that I knew it was like a a music that was a challenge to me and it kind of ticked all the boxes in my head as a kid. My dad was part of this this kind of record club where they send, they'd send a record every month or an album every month to the house. And loads of these things he just didn't like. I don't even know why he joined, to be honest. Like there were status quo albums and all <laughs> sorts of stuff. And um, But some of them I really got into. And like there was a, a John Coltrane album that he had. And somewhere on the line I kind of figured out that this was the music that I needed to to yeah. unlock if yeah. you know what I mean and I think the the first time I really got it was literally from this John Coltrane album it was called Giant Steps and I just kept on listening to it again and again and again and eventually I kind of figured out how it worked at least from you know that kind of teenage point of view and the other side of it, of course, was that I was just into these jazz clothes, these, mm. 
you know, the, the, the images that I saw of, of, you know, Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie, et cetera, et cetera, they all dressed the way I wanted to dress. So. Yeah. There's, do you think there is ever a kind of a rhyme or a reason behind that? Like, because it's, I have so often over the last few years, I've tried to trace back the origin point of why that look why have i ended up in the sort of quote unquote classic menswear bubble as opposed mm. to being in a totally different kind of clothing over here why do i fundamentally want to live in tailored jackets yeah. have you ever sort of done that exercise of you know was it just instinctive the jazz thing or was there a conscious kind of i don't know i mean i think because one of the things that that really one of the moments that i really remember as a child was not just you know sitting on the floor while my mum did all this this sewing and stuff, but also I think I must have been about I'd started wearing glasses when I was four years old, so this would have been when I was like early, like when I was about three years old, and I remember sitting like a, f- a foot away from the TV watching Fred Astaire films, and somehow there was a series on TV every afternoon of these films obviously black and white, these musicals, and somehow it just really captured my imagination. And I, I think in hindsight, it's because they were just made in, you know, in and around the depression period, and they were just these joyous, escapist, mm. like super glamorous films that had no, bore no relation to my everyday life. So I sat there watching these films, they, there was like a series of them I remember, and somehow routinely I'd be sitting in front of the TV like every afternoon watching this series of, of things age free. And I remember my mum and my dad telling me off as things so close to the television, <laughs> which is how I know that it was before I got glasses because yeah. nobody figured out until I was four that I was short sighted. Got you. So, um, but there was something about Fred Astaire that really kind of, I don't know, just kind of inspired me. So whenever we'd go shopping, I'd say to my parents, I want to dress like Alistair. I want those clothes, mum, not those clothes. I want those shoes. And she, you know, couldn't understand a word I was saying because I was saying Alistair. <laughs> Obviously, I couldn't read. And to my, my understanding, that's what he was named. Yeah. His name was. And then I later on realised that it actually was Fred Astaire. It still didn't help, you know, in terms of me getting any of these clothes, but at least I understood what I was, I, what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, so I think that had a lot to do with it, the fact that I had this kind of fixation from a very early age of liking and wanting to dress like Fred Astaire without any real context at all, but just figuring, figuring it's that it's that. Was it an escapist thing? Is it was it is it escapism through clothes or not? I think it was for me when I was younger, as I've reflected on it. Mm. Like my, like we call it, it's become known on the podcast as my Al Capone phase. Right, <laughs> I think that was escapism. Um, it's super interesting, isn't it? I, I find. Let me ask you kind of a, a, a conceptual question then at this point, or a slightly more conceptual question. How have you, so as you sit here in a wonderful madras shirt or check shirt, and you've come in, in like a denim trucker, you're not dressed like Fred Astaire. You, you, you've chosen not to go through life literally trying to recreate the 1920s. Why? Tell me why you haven't done that. Uh, it, it, because I, I always find this thing about context and clothing very interesting. You obviously choose to dress for your own time and not be so nostalgic that you will only wear 
like a mid-century suit and tie. Mm. Why is it important to you to kind of consider context? To be honest, I'm not sure. I mean, at a certain point, I... I mean, the other thing, the other influence that I think made me really interested in clothes and the imagery was um, David Bowie. Right. And when I was eight, my cousin, Cynthia, was maybe like, I don't know, another eight years older than me. And she was really into Bowie. And I remember going to her house, her parents' house, and see, sitting in her room and seeing all these Bowie posters and asking her who the hell this was and all this stuff. And she explained... And the whole idea of, of constructing, creating an image and being able to change, you know, and adapt to your time kind of really, really stuck with me. And so in a, in a way, my whole understanding of, of creativity comes from that moment where I, I discovered David Bowie. Wow. And um, so to me, it's like, I've never been nostalgic. I've never tried to kind of, recreate the past I've always figured with a small m you know small playful m that I'm a modernist and I always want to kind of I'm really interested in trends and directions and what's happening in the future and so it doesn't really serve me to try and you know recreate the past or keep on um, looking backwards mm. so yeah I mean I like vintage clothes I like playing with clothes I don't really like dressing up and I think you know, if I wanted to dress in a 1920s way, then that would be dressing up. Mm. But actually, I'd rather just dress, just enjoy that moment, you know. And so it's, to me, it's a different, completely different thing. Uh, I think that's a really, really healthy distinction. I love that, that, that there is a difference between playing with clothes and dressing up. And I, I, where I've, whereas I think perhaps sort of the 23, 24 year old Alex was much closer without, even was without realizing it to the dressing up line, mm. across the dressing up line. These days I'm, I'm so, I've become such a believer for just play with clothes, have fun. You don't have a single identity, you know, different identities, different days, different outfits, different parts of your wardrobe. I think that's a really healthy thing. But I also think it comes from an understanding that you, your, your clothes are designed to help you move through the world and not necessarily stick out like a sore thumb in an in a unhelpful way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, don't get me wrong, as a kid, I used to stick out like a sore thumb in a really unhelpful way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I kind of had to, to accept that about, you know, who I, who I am or who I was. Um, at one point... I guess everybody goes through this. I was 16 and we're all going to house parties and blues parties and sound system events and stuff. And I decided at one point to dress like everybody else because I never got to dance with any girls. I never, you know, really enjoyed myself at these parties. So I figured actually on this occasion, I'm going to go shopping and tonight I'm going to just be like everyone else. I'm going to wear exactly what they wear. I'm going to see, you know, I'm going to enjoy myself like they do. And so I went shopping. I bought what I figured everybody else would, would be wearing, which they were. I still didn't enjoy it. And I still didn't get to dance, dance with a girl. So I figured, you know what? It's not the clothes, it's me. It's me who's the, the outsider, who's different. So I may as well enjoy myself and enjoy what I wear rather than 
try and fit in because I'm guaranteed to fail anyway. So I continued being the outsider and the weirdo and all that stuff. And that doesn't mean to say I didn't have any friends or anything. They just recognized me as the, you know. Yeah, they valued you for who you were. Yeah, the yeah, slightly yeah. different kid, if yeah. you know what I mean. That's, that, I find that fascinating as well. And a, and a really healthy thing to hear, I think, as well. Because while I, while I am a big believer in sort of dressing for your, your, your context and, and, and the, the places and the times that you're moving through the world, you know, clothes are for you and they are for you to enjoy and they are supposed to make you feel good they're not supposed to do the opposite yeah um wonderful i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna come back around to your timeline just for a few more minutes jazz promoter or, or pr let's say club <laughs> pr how long did you do that for what was the story there it felt like quite a while to be honest i started doing this one nighter and then we did various kind of on-off events and I realized that I couldn't DJ, so I was always going to be the promoter press guy. Yeah. Um, stuff I learned from Lynn, like, you know, doing collaborations and getting sponsorship and all that stuff I put into these, these clubs we were doing. And um, then I got asked by the guys who ran the Limelight Club to, to do a night there. And prior to that, Limelight was this enormous kind of super club, one of the first super clubs ever in the UK. They kind of defined it because they just come from New York and they got this huge church in Charing Cross Road. And obviously at the time I was too cool to even think about going to the limelight <laughs> when it started up. But three years down the line, they invited me to, you know, take on their, their basement and to do exactly what I wanted to do. So rather than play jazz records, I figured I'd put on jazz musicians. And... Um, so again, not being stuck to this, this kind of formula. And it just so happened at the time that a lot of guys from the Guild Hall were leaving and kind of embarking on their own careers. And so it, I was really lucky that I had this whole kind of generation of, of amazing jazz musicians. And the reason Limelight asked me to do it is because a film Round, Round Midnight came out. Got you. And Courtney Pine had you know, landed like this kind of amazing fully complete jazz saxophonist from Britain that no one ever, you know, could ever conceive of existing. Yeah. And so they recognised that there was a market there and they wanted me to kind of tap into that market, which is pretty much what I did, you know. But again, it was a question of working with people I liked, getting my mates to perform, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a... You build, you know, you build a community and you yeah. back people you value, right? Yeah. I think that's, all, that's how all the best creative endeavours work. Um, I was like, life's too short to work with people you don't like, isn't it? Exactly, and it's life's too short to work with people you don't get, you don't understand, if you know what I mean. And, and these guys really kind of deserved, you know, a, a platform. And some of, them, some of those events, some of those nights, like the jam sessions, were just unbelievable. Mm. Like, there was, you know, there's nothing better than to, to have that kind of moment where there's these musicians who are like you know in their early 20s and they're really f trying to find their way and they're still tapping into you know the modal stuff or you know stream uh, the kind of circular breathing of, of um, John Coltrane etc they're still learning and practicing and getting better and you can just see it live on stage and they're kind of sparring with each other and it was just like incredible literally and it was again this kind of underground scene that, that developed so every Wednesday, you know, this, this gathering of people would be there. We wouldn't quite know what, what would happen, but it was like 
amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah, the energy in that room must have been phenomenal. Yeah. I wish I could have seen it. It sounds awesome. No, it was incredible. And then, you know, as the limelight recognised that I was kind of cheap and into what I was doing, <laughs> um, they asked me to do other stuff. So I ended up doing, uh, you know, nights upstairs as well. So again, working with my mates. Um, again, you know, essentially I'm a PR person, so I'm super social, super sociable. I'm not really into the, the conventions of clubbing. I'm more into, you know, um, highlighting new talent and working with people who are kind of a bit out of the loop. So, you know, eventually we end up doing a, a series of rare groove nights, which help kind of define and shape the idea of what rare groove is about. Um, then we do a series of P-Funk and I guess you call it Paisley Park. So it's like a weird combination that a friend of mine suggested, actually Sadie Yukon suggested. Ah. Um, when I was like, I need to do something new. <laughs> I've got a, you know, a Thursday night. What am I, you know, what am I getting What does it become? Like, yeah, she was like, why don't you do P-Funk and, no, why don't you do P-Funk? And then somebody else, who, one of my mates, who I invited to DJ said, you know, we can't just do P-Funk, we'll do Paisley Park as well. And that was another moment that was like incredible. Wow. Because it was basically a bunch of black kids all dressed super weirdly, like just super weirdly. <laughs> and, um, you know, different again from the, the rare groove stuff. But again, it was like this kind of explosion of creativity. Yeah. And people from all over London coming into town just to listen to this, this left of field funk music. You must have felt very proud to be orchestrating all that. I, didn't, I don't know if it was proud because I was trying to organise it. And so I was, I was really happy that it was working and really happy that, again, it was music that I personally was into and I was being able to share this and working with my mates. So that was, that was great. But the organising part took out the, the pride because every night was, you know, you're, you're managing a ton of people. Mm. So it was, it was still work. But... You know, people would say, would, would see it as like a, almost like a, a hustle, if you know what I mean. Like you've come up with some new genre. The genre already existed. We were just, you know, enjoying the genre in a, in a club context. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm too self-critical to be proud. But yeah, if, if, if I wasn't me, then I would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you should be, Jason. Oh, yeah, it sounds... Like a pretty significant, and again, because we've not chatted before, I didn't realise it's pretty, pretty significant to be the genesis of these like really, really culturally impactful, like empowering nights for a lot of people. Well, kind of again, being into, like I said, not looking back, but trying to understand, you know, what we maybe call trends and directions and stuff like that, and you know, the, the flow of 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 where culture is, which is you know, again, going back to my kind of education through Bowie um, it kind of made sense to do these things but also that the the people were there you know Jazzy B was there mm. um, Norman Jay was there um, you know all these guys Trevor Nelson was there Kiss FM was there so it kind of you know I'd almost be an idiot not to to you know kind of work with these guys and capitalize on it yeah yeah and just lean into it for yeah. that period of time so uh, I'm fascinated by this idea of the, the the phrase you just used was sort of exploring trends and looking at the flow of culture. 
Can we bring the conversation up to today a little bit? What are you picking up on now or what's interesting you at the moment from a cultural or trend perspective? Uh, that's, that's, again, a hard one. I think I've, what's exciting for me at the moment is, I don't know, I think it's, it's the creativity that I see coming out of rap music. Cool. And how that's impacting on everything else. Now, in real terms, it's, it's actually not rap music. It's more like progressive music or experimental music. And the people who are the purveyors of it are actually progressive and experimental. They're not really, you know, they've got just the celebrity of rap artists and musicians, but actually they're, they're really playing around with culture and, and, you know, stretching the definition of that genre completely. So, you know, I was thinking, for example, if Kanye West didn't have all the other baggage around him. When he introduced this STEM product and this record, Donde 2, then essentially he would have been heralded as a, a genius. You know, if Brian Eno had done that, it would be a game changer. It would be like a landmark moment in, in the development of kind of, you know, our consumption of music. But because it's Kanye and because of the context that he's delivering it in, yeah. it's kind of seen as this gimmick almost, this disposable kind of tool for him to sell records and to make a ton of money. But actually if you maybe in in you know in a few years time when we look back and a lot of the dust has settled on on the other stuff, we'll realise that this was a, a moment. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? In the same way people like um, I don't know, Frank Ocean or Tyler the Creator or obviously Pharrell Williams, you know, stuff like Nigo's album. Yeah. It just to me, these are a real kind of really interesting moments where stuff's kind of shifting and, and connecting. And that's, that to me is quite exciting. And I think w one of the things that interests me about that, and I, I, I cannot profess to be an expert in, <laughs> in rap or hip hop, I'm afraid. <laughs> but, but one of the things that I find very interesting about a lot of these protagonists is something that, that we talk about quite a lot is not asking for permission to create, just creating they all just create stuff. Yeah. They just have something internally that tells them, yeah, this is right, this is right for me, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Whether that's pivoting into a fashion brand and then launching a second fashion brand or you know, going and working at a major luxury house and disrupting the hell out of it for five years. You know, they've, they've, all these guys have got a maverick tendency that I think is so interesting because they are pushing creativity in a way that the conventional kind of creative establishment just isn't at and all. Like you say, no permission required. They're, they're not asking no. if they're qualified. They're not, you know, waiting for our approval. They're just going ahead and doing it. And it's, what's to me interesting is that a lot of people say, you know, currently the record industry, music industry is kind of, I don't know, like a wasteland because if you sign to a record label, you don't really have chance to develop your craft and all this stuff. But somehow these guys do mm. and somehow they've kind of broken that that system to the point where actually like you say they can you know release a record when they want or they can release you know um collaborations with all sorts of other people and they can make music that isn't definitive rap they can sing they can rap they can do instrumentals they can do soundtracks they can do all sorts of stuff and they don't need anyone's permission to do it and no. I, I just think that's a really exciting you know, culturally, from a from a distance, that's a really exciting moment. And what kind of I'm looking at or looking for is how that 
kind of expands into the rest of the game, if you know what I mean. The rest yeah. of this, this landscape. And where does that where does that cultural moment what are the ripples that we're going to see in five years time yeah yeah, yeah really really interesting the other thing that I, th- I think is fascinating about those guys is they're genuinely multidisciplinary yeah. which which I just don't think we really see today but like and again uh, you know I think the late great Virgil Abloh was, was the perfect example of that you know this guy could you know studied architecture could design a building but could also <laughs> could also launch his own brand or could also creative direct a massive legacy brand into such an incredibly kind of inspiring, disruptive place, yeah. you know. And he's done that from from a background in architecture, but then he's also, you know, works in... It's just nuts, the stuff he's done, or yeah. did. Um, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, the, the hope is that through his example and through his legacy, those, those kind of changes will continue mm-hmm. and only expand, so... Yeah, it's, you know that to me is what what culturally is really exciting at the moment. Brilliant. Well, thank you. It's really really insightful. Really really interesting to get your take. Um, I'm going to pivot into another cultural phenomenon that is Black Ivy, a revolt in style. Um, <laughs> I um, it, it's a fabulous book. Thank you. It's really fabulous. I'm, I've been through it properly and thoroughly enjoyed it. My signed copy that I picked up in New York. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, how long have you, did you have the idea for the book in your head? It's hard to say. I mean, I've always seen, I've always seen that pattern and that, that aspect of, of Ivy culture, if you know what I mean, from as long as I can remember. Um, but the urge to write the book kind of grew over time. And it grew, it was propelled really by a lot of, of knocks and a lot of kind of weird kind of side-on insults, if you know what I mean. Well, talk to me about that. That's interesting. Um, you know, like where you'd, for example, I remember going to New York as a kid and dressing in a way that I thought was, you know, made perfect sense. And I was quite, this is my first time actually, I was quite shocked to see how non-Ivy people dressed. Right. You know, it's like, this is the 80s and I'm wearing a pair of stay press trousers and some loafers. And the trousers are obviously super short. Mm. And, you know, I've got these kind of national health type glasses on, etc. And, you know, I'm getting builders kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of doing wolf whistles and stuff at me because I'm looking so weird to them right and um so this kind of this made me think actually what you know what i understand as as clothing as as you know and the, the holy grail being in new york is not the same as what it really is and so my sense of reality was was not the same as everybody else's somebody in new york said i looked like urkel and urkel is a character in a, a u.s tv comedy series and he is like a, a weird geek and it was almost as if um, they were saying that I was this kind of super off-key, non-black type person. Yeah. And Urkel was black, but he was like just, just really geeky, basically. So I kind of started thinking, well, what people are doing when I'm, what some people are doing when I'm wearing these clothes is basically questioning my my identity and my, my sense of, of self. Yeah. Even though what I think I'm doing is, you know, being myself and literally every day trying to be more like myself, 
to a lot of people, it's actually a kind of betrayal of, of black culture. And that's kind of been, you know, somewhere on the line, that's been like a, an element, a consistent element for, for, you know, as long as I can remember. The book for you, I guess, then, it were, the motivation for it was to sort of correct the record in it, I guess. Is that sort of a fair enough thing to say? In a sense, yeah. It was to kind of join the, the, the dots, if you know what I mean, and basically see that where we are now, where dressing in a kind of sartorial way is, you know, for a black person, it's almost seen as you're an outlier, you're somebody, you know, you're not kind of following the, the prescripted path of black culture, of contemporary black culture. But also what goes along with that in the sense that if you're, you know, the, the, the thing about Black Ivy, the thing about the civil rights movement was that not only was dressing in a certain way important, but also stuff like education and voting was important. So, you know, kind of fighting for your civil liberties and, and, and your rights was important. And so I can see the parallels now, but I can also see the fact that, you know, culturally we, we tend to undervalue education Mm. And, you know, if you've got a degree, you're not as cool as if you've got a, a rap sheet, if you know what I mean, in, mm. in popular culture. So what I was thinking, what inspired me to kind of retrace these steps was the fact that actually these things are really important, but somehow we've lost the, the focus on them. Yeah. And it's almost as if by... by seeing these guys as what they really were which was heroes you can't you can't kind of consider that wearing these clothes as a compromise or is a kind of sign of weakness or no. trying to acquiesce to to mainstream culture because it took a lot of risk and courage and it was literally a revolt yeah so i was basically trying to contextualize that as you know what happened then but the reason to do it was because of what was happening now. Mm. Mm. I can't get my head around the idea that, that anyone would have an issue with, uh, you know, quote unquote black ivy, because it, 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 to your point, it was the uniform that of, of literally that's so enmeshed in like the future of race relations and, and black culture in America. Like it's, that's what you had to wear to show up, step up and fight. Yeah, it's it's so integral to twentieth century American history. How how could it be anything but? But it's part of an, like an inconvenient truth in a sense that mm. if there's a point where you know it's almost like because of those those very factors, people want to you know uh, the moment I'm I'm tr in my head I'm trying to work out this this story that I want to write, and it's about the mid 60s and I think it's 19 I think we should google it it's like 1967 or 65 and it's basically the summer of love so the summer of love essentially is when a lot of kids from all over the states went to um, California and basically became hippies yeah but in that same summer 67 67 in that same summer there was a whole series of riots like Detroit uh, Washington like everywhere so it's about your pers perspective you know we, we all know about the summer of love but the term long hot summer which is what was coined to describe 
all those riots and those disturbances is not really something that we talk about that much. No. So when you think of the mid-60s, you think about hippies. You don't really think about those disturbances and that struggle for... That fight for social justice, yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. So you have literally got two different parallel existences going on in America at the same moment in time. And you can view... that. I would love to read that. That's a fascinating piece. And one's convenient because we can see, you know, Silicon Valley and we can see all, you know, the the results of, of the whole kind of hippie movement to now and we can celebrate that to a certain degree or lament it if you want but the other side the struggle which continues mm. we don't really want to talk about that nobody really wants to put that in the you know at the top you know in the front cover of a history book so it's not really mentioned no and if it is then it's as a footnote to this hippie movement. I, I also think that there is such a... I, again, your, to your point of wanting to do the book at this particular moment in time, because it being an important moment in time, that is, is, is fascinating as well. And I, and I completely agree with you. One of the things that I find very frustrating is the way that, that <laughs> white people, and particularly like the white establishment, we, we just want to kind of put all of this into the past. Oh, it's all sorted now. Oh, everyone's equal. It's all okay. It's all dealt with. We've done it. And, it, and we, we just haven't. And it's so obvious that we haven't. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, again, really struggle with that white perspective of, oh, yeah, we can nostalgize over this now because it, it, it was in the past. It, it happened a long time ago. But it, it is still going on. The fight is still going on. Yeah, the parallels are still there. And, you know, the, the conflict is still there and maybe it's more sophisticated in some respects but and maybe we've got statistics to counter a lot of the stuff that we already know but in real terms yeah. you know that there's an imbalance and it hasn't yet been corrected yeah I, I wanted to ask what what was the most surprising thing about working on the book for you was it what did you enjoy most about it was it sort of an enjoyable experience or was it quite an intense experience or how did it come together it was enjoyable and intense. Um, I don't know, when I, when I write, it, it feels like a very kind of visceral, physical thing. So I was really kind of into it. And I was writing this book in Paraguay. So, you know, say from midnight to four in the morning, I was sitting there just writing this stuff. Oh, God, so you're, you're, a, you're a nocturnal writer. In that instance, yeah. Yeah, because everyday life in Paraguay is so busy and yeah. so kind of... Um, unscripted say that actually the only time I could find was you know in the small hours of the morning and um yeah it was was super enjoyable I mean one of the things that kind of made it a challenge was actually knowing when to stop knowing when we had enough images Mm. and knowing when we kind of I don't know it's like there are just just so many images that we could have used that we just had to kind of like self-edit a lot before we got to the actual editing part, if you know what I mean. I always struggle with that. I struggle with that in terms of word counts and things, even today. Like I could, you know, someone says it's 1,400 words. I could, I'll do 1,900 and then I'll have to find a way to lose five. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, it, but it was enjoyable and rewarding. How quickly did it, ta- did it come together? How long were you working on it? I kind of start by, with most things like kind of like by running on the spot for a while (laughs) so 
you know, we discussed the book maybe, I don't know, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, etc. And then I was kind of amassing pictures, more pictures and trying to, you know, because I've obviously got a ton already. And I was, but I didn't start writing, writing until maybe, I don't know, three or four months before the actual Oh, uh, right, release. the deadline. Yeah. Did, it, did you unearth any particular gems in your research? Were there pictures you hadn't seen before or that, did you kind of have most of them in your head when you I had most together? of them in, in my head. Um, the, you know, images of, of Muhammad Ali mm. with uh, that striped shirt and the, the Lee jacket. I hadn't seen that quality of image before. Stuff like that. That yeah. kind of, you know, when you're kind of compiling it near the end, it, it does get super exciting when you find this this image that, you know, there's actually there's an image of a, a kid who is unnamed. He's wearing a pair of sunglasses, I think, and he's got a chore jacket, a denim chore jacket and a tie. And that I'd never seen before. Mm. And that was like, wow, okay. And it's the camera's looking like right down on him, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that yeah. Is, that's a great picture. Brilliant. And did you expect then that the book would have the response it's had? Because it really seems that everyone has just been fascinated by it and really appreciated it. And I've seen you've sort of, you've done loads of like cool interviews and it's had a really great response. Yeah. I mean, to be, to be totally honest, I, putting my kind of marketing PR hat on, I, I kind of knew that it, it would make sense to people. Mm. And only in a, in a, because it was the, the right moment. You know, mm. if, it, if it come out maybe a year before, it might not have made so much sense. But right now, um, again, with the cover that the guys at Real Art Press found, um, yeah, it, it, it definitely, I kind of figured that it would, it would resonate, yeah. Brilliant. Well, and also, to be honest, when I, when I wrote the book, I realized that I had to, to kind of separate myself from the person who wrote it. So the mm. minute I, I sent off the last kind of piece of copy, I decided actually now I'm going to have to not be the person who wrote it because that guy is too shy and too introvert and too kind of, um, well, basically overthinks stuff too much. So I'm going to have to be the, the, you know, the PR person. I'm going to have to support this thing because it's, it's actually more important than, than my little sensitive ego. It's actually something that will hopefully have an impact on people and, and you know just kind of affirm a lot of stuff that people kind of already know but yeah. just haven't got the words and, for and, have I, and I think it's done that hasn't it the book's really articulated something um, that I think so many people as you say either haven't got the words for or have never really explicitly kind of gone oh yeah that is a thing and it matters yeah, yeah I think it's brilliant it, it also leads me to ask uh, the question what, what, are, what are you working on now what comes next? What other projects are in the pipeline? I guess I'm, I'm always into something. I'm always doing, you know, different projects and, and working with, again, with people I like. So there's always something going on. Um, one thing that I'm, I'm super excited about is this kind of collaboration or special edition with, with Drake's. That's coming out pretty soon. And it's essentially a kind of a selection of clothes that I've picked and, and discussed with the guys at Drake's. So it's like kind of 
premised on, on my personal taste and stuff that I find exciting about the brand. And that, that's coming out really soon. So, you know, it includes stuff like madras shirts, um, club collar shirts, um, tweed jackets, stuff like that. Wicked. And also we've got a special um, series of belts as well, which are like super luxurious, super beautiful, super rugged, like just on yeah. another level. That's intriguing. Oh, very cool. Okay, and that's dropping soon. Very soon. Oh, you heard it here first, listeners. Really exciting. I can't wait to see that. Um, Jason, thank you for this afternoon. Um, I could chat to you for another three hours, but I'm mindful of the time. I have two more questions for you. I, a question I always love asking. I nearly asked it earlier, but I'll, well, let's ask it now. Um, in all your years as a kind of a creative and a philosopher and then doing everything that you do, What's the most important thing you think you've learned over the course of your career? If you could pass one thing on, what would it be? I think the most important thing for me is to like what you do. And that's pretty much it. To like what you do and to, to figure out a way of, of sharing that with people. And it's not about money, it's not about um, getting credit it's not about even how long this project's going to last because things aren't meant to last forever it's just a question of really kind of enjoying it at the time as much as you possibly can and if you don't if you can sense that you're not going to enjoy it then just don't do it mm. and, and that philosophy allows you to kind of just flow from one thing the, the, the one thing that's right to the next thing that's right to the next thing that's right yeah and as a result you can't it's almost pointless defining your your kind of your career path by a certain type of project because you may end up front of house or you may end up you know in the back room doing something you may end up as a promoter or you may end up as the host um but it doesn't kind of really matter because it's all part of the experience. You're, you're learning and you're growing, you know, whatever you're doing. But also, if you're into it, if you're enjoying it, then that's really all it's about. Wicked. I think that's so sage. I love that. I'm a big believer in that. Just, yeah, it's, it's got to come from a place of genuine interest and passion, hasn't it? Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, and, that, and also people will be able to tell. Mm. You know, it's, you kind of, you're not only shortchanging yourself, you're shortchanging other people. So often when I get asked, you know, Jason, do you want to do this? I, the next question I have is, is there somebody else who can do it better than me? Is there somebody else who should, should do this instead? And if I, you know, I can't think of someone, if I feel strongly enough about it and I can actually add my own personal imprint to it, then, then I'm game, even if I've never done it before. I love that. That's a great question to ask, isn't it? Is there someone else who could do this better? If not, it's, it's mine. I'm having it. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, last, last one for you, Jason. I haven't really phrased this in my mind, but so bear with me while I piece this together. But I hope you won't mind me saying, sat here, first proper chat. I've so enjoyed it. You strike me as a very sort of serene, wise grounded kind of comfortable within yourself individual how <laughs> how do you get to that point in life where you're just completely comfortable with yourself <laughs> i wish i was comfortable with myself um i think the most for me i'm like i said i'm enjoying my day that's mm -hmm. the goal and 
I think that's pretty much it. You know, it's just like I'm trying to enjoy every single moment. That's that's it. That's the essence of it. And you know, like I said, there there are other stuff that are out beyond my power. Loads of things, but my focus is actually I'm I'm here now. I'm hanging out with people that. I've met before and I kind of like and I know I'm going to like more and we're going to you know we're doing something that we all enjoy so what's not to love job done (laughs) (laughs) well um, Jason thank you so much again I really really appreciate it and that was a fascinating conversation with a lot to take away and think about so thank you very much indeed thank you nice one there you are team that's episode 8 all wrapped up Let us know what you thought. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps other people to discover the podcast and propels us up the charts. Thank you to my producers at Birch, as always, and to our sound editor and theme music composer, Joe Boyd. Have a really wonderful week, and I'll see you back here before too long.